right, thanks, team. You guys can have a seat. Please give the band a hand. They did a great job this morning. It's fun to have my Katie home from college and singing. Joe and Jen Lafino, thanks for jumping in and helping with the band. It's great having you guys. All right, we've got some books to hand out to our young ones. So if I could have Allie and Lily and uh, Brooklyn and Shelby, could you guys all help me? Just take a stack of these, go hand them out to some kids or parents too if you want. I'm just going to leave the box up here in case you guys need to get some more. Thanks for singing loudly this morning. It was a real blessing to me again. Again, parents, we are uh, we're keeping the kids in here with us today, which is not how we normally do things. So uh, it's okay if they're a little squirrely. Uh, hopefully not as squirrely as the squirrel that's downstairs. But uh, we're just, we're just going to play it cool. We'll enjoy our, our time together. So if you need coloring materials uh, to go with the book, there's some on the table behind the sound booth there. You're welcome to jump up and get those at any point. Thanks, Brooklyn. So we've got a few extra copies of the book. You guys are welcome to come and take as many copies as you want after the service for uh, friends, relatives, grandkids, whatever you'd like to do there. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the passage in John that Trudy read earlier. We thank you that you met Thomas in his doubts and you embraced him in love and grace and forgiveness. Lord, some of us, we have doubts this morning. We don't know what to make of the, the claims of the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, or that you'd meet us in our doubts this morning. Lord, for, for those of us who are convinced of the, the truth of those historical facts, Lord, help us to remember, Lord, build us up, uh, strengthen us encourage us this morning. Each of us here, Lord, is in need of your grace and mercy even this morning. And as we read from the next chapter in, in John, it's going to be just so beautiful and obvious to us how eager you are to give us grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you'd help us to receive your word this morning, that it would shape us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start with the, uh, the little storybook. So kids, if you, uh, if you open it up and find page 18, let me find it here, 18, it looks, looks like this, All right. so this, this booklet is a short version of a real book, it's a big hardcover book and uh, I'd encourage you guys to consider ordering it. It's a storybook Bible, which means it tells the story of the Bible but it's not the actual Bible itself. It's not a substitute for the Bible. It's something that you can uh, add to the reading with your children to help them understand the Bible. So parents, grandparents, I would recommend taking this home, reading through it with them, maybe a chapter a night, helping them understand what's going on. So kids, if you look on page 18, it looks like this, and there's a picture of the, the crown of thorns. And you imagine the sharp, pointy thorns being pushed into Jesus head, how terrible that would be, and then those three nails nailed through his wrists and through his ankles, just such incredible pain that he took for us. If you look on the next page, this is a picture of the trial of Jesus. It was a total sham of a trial. The, the crowds asked that a murderer and a, 
a rebellious insurrection leader be, be released instead of innocent Jesus. That's what's happening in that picture. And if you flip over the page, then there's this big picture here of Jesus carrying his cross towards the hill that he would be crucified on. Now, we know that he didn't make it all the way before he stumbled. He was so worn out from the terrible beating that he had that somebody else had to carry it the rest of the, the way for him. I love what Kevin DeYoung, the author of this storybook Bible, what he says on this page in the, the second paragraph. I want to read it to you. It says, if you could have seen Jesus being led to his death that afternoon, everything would have looked upside down. He was the maker of all things, too weak to carry his cross. Here was the loving king killed between two thieves. Here was God's beloved son mocked and mistreated by anyone and everyone. If you're familiar with the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, it might just kind of blend into the background of your memories and it just it doesn't really stand out so much. But if you were there that day you would not have been able to forget what you saw. If you flip over the next page, we've got this here with the crucifixion of Jesus. And here we have uh, an illustration of Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, hanging on a Roman cross. The, the women who love him are weeping. The soldiers are standing by, standing guard. And if you turn the page to the next one, you see a, a picture of a Roman soldier kneeling in front of the cross. I want to read to you again from this page. But one Roman soldier at the foot of the cross got it right. Truly, he said, this man was the Son of God. Nobody else there figured that out, but he did. And if Jesus was the Son of God, maybe that last breath was not the last word from Jesus. Now we know that to be true. We know that moments, minutes after Jesus um, says his last words, he breathes his last breath and dies on the cross. And that soldier responds to that moment by saying, surely this had to be the Son of God. And he thought it was over at that point. But it wasn't. For Jesus was laid in a tomb and three days later he rose from the dead and that is what we celebrate today. So what I'd like to do is read for you the short chapter on the resurrection, and then we're going to leave behind the storybook Bible and dive into the, the real Bible. So if you're following along, it looks like this, pink page, it says Jesus lives. Jesus knew that he was going to die and that he wouldn't stay dead. Friday was dark and sad. Saturday was stone cold silent. But Sunday, the third day, was not just another day or Another week, it was another age. A new time had begun. The biggest story had turned a page. The world would never be the same. At the break of day, Mary Magdalene and a group of women went to the tomb. They thought they would find Jesus there and put perfume on his dead body. What they found instead was a complete surprise. On the outside of the tomb, the stone had been rolled away, and on the inside of the tomb, there was no Jesus. The women wondered what this meant, but before they could think very long, two angels, as bright as the sun, stood by them. Why do you seek the living among the dead, the angels asked. Jesus is not here. He is risen, just as he said. 
And then the women remembered that Jesus had said that he would be raised on the third day. They had not understood what this meant, but now they did. The slithering serpent had not won after all. Death had been defeated. The wages of sin had been paid for. The long-awaited snake crusher had kept his promise, and all the promises of God would forever be kept in him. Mary and the other women ran back to tell the disciples what they had seen and heard. At first, the disciples didn't believe them. A dead man back to life? What a fairy tale, they thought. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb to see for himself whether the good news was too good to be true. When he arrived at the tomb, it was even more amazing than he had dared to hope. Peter hurried into the tomb and found nothing but grave clothes. Jesus wouldn't be needing those anymore. He wasn't dead any longer, and he wouldn't be dead ever again. In the days and weeks ahead, Jesus appeared to the disciples several times in a room along the road on the beach making breakfast. He even appeared to more than 500 of his followers at one time. God raised Jesus from the dead, and plenty of people saw him with their own two eyes. The light of the world was still shining. The bread of life was still alive. The true vine was the first fruits of a new hope. It turns out the best news in in the history of the world was too good not to be true. I hope you guys will take that home and, and read the rest of it today or tomorrow or the next few days. For now, we're going to ask the question, what happened after that resurrection of Jesus? If that was really the beginning of a, of a new age, a new era, a new chapter in history, what sort of things took place right after that? The storybook mentioned that Jesus appeared to some of his followers on multiple occasions, and one of them we have a lot of information about. It's a meeting on a beach, and it includes breakfast. I like breakfast. Lots of guys like breakfast. In this case, Jesus makes breakfast and invites his buddies to eat with him. I think you're going to find this very encouraging this morning. We're going to read from John chapter 21. If you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 907. So this is after the resurrection, this is after Jesus has appeared to some of the disciples a few times. We read this, Luke 21, I'm sorry, John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's uh, the lake in northern Israel. It's about the size of Grand Lake St. Mary's, but there are mountains around it, and it's a lot deeper and a lot cleaner. So they go to the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So it's not all of the disciples. Jesus has you know, appeared to great numbers of them already, but this is just a small group of them, some of the main dudes. We've got Peter, the main leader, and then we've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and a few other guys. They're back on their home turf where they grew up, where they spent all of their younger years, their first years of their adult lives. These guys are fishermen. They are used to this lake. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee and wait for him there. How long have they been waiting? How bored are they? What have they been doing as they wait? What kind of emotions have been going through their minds? Are they sad? Are they confused? Are they angry? Are they scared? They don't know what to expect. Peter 
He just can't take it anymore. He's got to do something. So he's going to do what he knows best. He's going to go fishing. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now most of the fishing in the Sea of Galilee is done at night. And so you can imagine them getting in as the sun's going down. They spend all night casting the net out, pulling it back in, casting the net out, pulling it back in over and over, maybe hundreds of times throughout the night. And every time they pull the nets in, they are completely empty. Maybe this time it'll be different. Nope, no fish. Well, maybe the next time. Nope, no fish. If you're a fisherman, you, you know this happens sometimes. Sometimes there's really good days of fishing. Sometimes there's really bad days of fishing. I know there's the saying that, that a bad day of fishing is better than a good day at work. But for these guys, this was their work, their occupation. And it was a bad day of fishing and a bad day of work. This was not a good time for them. It probably amplified their already bad moods. They had felt like total failures for abandoning Jesus a couple weeks before. And now they're total failures at their old jobs, too. They can't even catch some lousy fish. I wonder if you have ever felt that way, like a failure. Maybe you got fired from a job, or you failed a class, or you got held back in school, or maybe you gambled on an investment and you lost it all, or your marriage fell apart, or your kids have made a mess that reflects bad back badly on you, well, then you understand some of what these guys are probably experiencing as they failed Jesus and they failed to catch any fish. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. If you've read through the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you may have been surprised at how many times people have trouble recognizing Jesus. It seems that after his resurrection, there were differences about his body that made even his best friends have a hard time recognizing him. Now, maybe this time the sun was rising behind him, or maybe it's just they're really not sure what he looks like yet in this resurrected body, but he's standing on the shore, and they don't know it's him. And he asked them a question. Fishermen in the crowd, if you guys have been fishing, like these guys, for hours on end, and you have caught nothing, and a stranger walks up and says, hey, how's the fishing? How do you respond? Not good? Yeah. If we're honest, many of us uh, will kind of sugarcoat it, right? We'll say something like, well, I've had better days fishing. And you won't say, no, I haven't caught a single thing. I'm a total failure. Can't you see the empty nets and the empty boats? Can you hear the tone in their voices as they respond with that one syllable? No. Thank you, stranger, for asking. We have not caught any fish. Now, Scott Voizard got to go on a fishing trip at Lake Erie this week. You should ask him about it after the service. I'll just tell you this. It was a bit windy. Now, what's even worse than a stranger asking you how the fishing's going when you haven't caught anything? 
Well, what if that stranger then gives you some advice on what you should do differently to catch those fish? And what if this is your profession? Your daddy taught you how to fish, and you've been doing this your whole life, and this stranger thinks he can tell you how to do it differently. Well, guess what Jesus does next? Verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. It's like there's this invisible, like a sheet of plexiglass that goes down the bottom of the boat all the way to the bottom of the lake, right? And the fish are on one side, and they can't get to the other side, right? Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, there's two surprising things here. First, I am surprised that they did this, right? Somebody they don't recognize, smart Alec on shore saying, just try the other side of the boat, guys. They're exhausted after all night fishing, discouraged. They did it. And I wonder if they're starting to put the pieces together. The memories are starting to come back to them of a similar experience years before when Jesus has done this very same thing. Maybe they're starting to suspect that it's him. The second surprising thing here is the catch of fish itself, that it's too much to haul in. Well, the clues are starting to line up. The pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together, and John realizes this has to be Jesus. Verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that, heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. So, football field away. Peter, and I'm not sure about this thought process, he puts more clothes on in order to jump into the sea and swim to shore. Makes his way there. This is typical Peter, right? He's always full throttle, sometimes in the right direction, sometimes in the wrong direction. A few years back, a bunch of us went to Kentucky on a mission trip, and uh, Chad here got the nickname of full throttle <laughs> for similar reasons. Full speed in one direction or the other direction, just always full speed, right? That's Peter here, and Peter through most of his life. John says, hey, it's Jesus on shore, and Peter just puts on his clothes and jumps in the lake. He leaves all the other guys with the too big catch of fish to drag it towards shore. Thank you, Peter, for leaving us out here to do more work. But Peter doesn't care, because Peter is desperate to be with Jesus. I wonder if that was true of us. What if we were so desperate to be with Jesus that we would do things that seem ridiculous to other people? What if we didn't care what people thought of us? We just want to be with Jesus. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So nobody asks how Jesus got the fish that he's already cooked or the bread. Nobody asks how he made the miraculous catch of fish happen just moments before. No one is even willing to ask him if he really is Jesus. They are silent. I think they're scared. The only sound for a while is that crackling fire and the sizzling fish. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, and all the memories of that last supper must have come flooding back. But can you feel the awkward silence as none of them know what to say? And it's particularly awkward for Peter, right? As Peter had boldly proclaimed that he would never abandon his Lord, even if it meant he had to die. I will always stand with you, Jesus, no matter what. And yet, we know that on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Exactly as Jesus had predicted. And yet Peter is so ashamed of his sin and his failure. He wants desperately to be with Jesus, but his sin stands as a wall between them. Have you been there? Maybe you're there today. You want desperately to be with Jesus. But like Peter, in this silence, not knowing what to say, there's this wall between them. The wall of his sin. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter's been in this situation, both with the wall of sin and with the miraculous catch of fish. If we flip back to the book of Luke, chapter 5, page 860 in the Pew Bibles, this is rewinding about three years in our story, we can read this. I'm just going to read the whole thing as a block here. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, yet another name for the Sea of Galilee, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both the boats that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That first miraculous catch of fish that had happened three years earlier is similar but different to what we just read in John's account after the resurrection. How did Peter respond that first time? He felt the weight of his sin. He, Through the miracle of the catch of fish, he recognized the divinity of Jesus. This is not just a traveling preacher man. This is God in the flesh. And I am not worthy to be next to him. And so he kneels before Jesus and asks Jesus to leave him. I am unworthy, Lord, 
please leave me. As heavy as the guilt of his sin was back three years earlier, it is much heavier now because he has been a best buddy of Jesus for three years and he promised to always stand by Jesus' side and yet the lowest point in the story of Jesus, Peter denied his friend. And so the guilt, the sin, the shame that is weighing on Peter at this second miraculous catch of fish is much greater than the first time. Some of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know this feeling. There was that amazing time earlier in your life when your sins were forgiven, you were washed clean, you were born again in Jesus, you started a new life in him, and then somewhere down the line, you just made a mess of things, and you walked away, or you abandoned him, or you denied him, or you just willfully disobeyed him, and it felt like you were even farther from him than you were before he saved you. But that wasn't true, because you were secure in his arms. He was holding you, and so Peter felt like more of a failure in this second moment, but in fact, it was not true. If we go back to John 21, we're going to see the amazing grace of Jesus at work over breakfast. Verse 15 of John 21, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now notice Jesus uses Peter's old name, Simon. And I wonder if Simon received that as kind of a a jab, a poke. Did he wonder if Jesus thought he was unworthy of the new name and the new calling that Jesus had given him, and he's got to go back to that old name, Simon. And then what about the question? Do you love me more than these? More than the fish? More than his buddies around the fire? More than his occupation? What does Jesus mean here? Do you love me more than these? But Peter proclaims that he does love Jesus more than these, whatever the these is. But he phrases it in a curious way. He says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See, Peter is convinced of the divinity of Jesus, and part of that divinity is the the omniscience, the all-knowingness of Jesus. It's almost as Peter is saying, why do you ask? You already know the question. You know my thoughts. You know the intentions of my heart. You know everything about me. Even when I don't understand what's going on inside of me, you understand it, Jesus. Why You ask, of course, I love you. And then Jesus responds by giving him a commission, a job to to feed his lambs. And if you remember the first miraculous catch of fish, when Peter is first called as a disciple of Jesus, Jesus gives him a commission there. He says, I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. You're going to catch people, Peter. So two commissions after two miraculous catches of fish, and they're kind of two sides of the same coin, Peter is still called to be an evangelist, to share the good news, to bring new people into the family of God. But he's also called here to feed, and he switches metaphors, feed the sheep, feed the lambs. Now, over the last two years, 
especially in politically conservative circles, the term sheep has become a derogatory term. If someone calls you a sheep, they probably mean that you're just blindly following after somebody and you're not thinking for yourself and you're not living your own life for yourself. Jesus is using this idea of sheep and lamb in a a very different way. Jesus is our good shepherd. He loves and cares for his sheep. He treasures his precious sheep. And in this case, he calls Peter to love and care for and feed spiritually those whom he loves. This is Peter being called to the role of a pastor or a shepherd, to care for the people in the family of God. What I'm doing right now is trying to feed you the sheep. I'm also a sheep, but somehow a shepherd at the same time. Trying to feed you on the word of God. And in one of the curious twists of the Bible, Jesus here says to Peter, feed my sheep. We understand later that that's a spiritual feeding on the word of God. And in this beautiful, ironic twist, God would actually use Peter to write a couple of the New Testament books that become that word of God that we can feed the sheep on. This is a new calling for Peter. He's not done. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Maybe a little bit of edge in his voice this time. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Same idea, care for my sheep. They, they belong to me, they're not your sheep, they're my sheep, but I want you as an under-shepherd to tend them, to care for them. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Jesus, he's, he's not just rubbing it in here. He's, he's not trying to cause Peter pain by doing this three times in a row, even though it does grieve Peter. What's he doing here? He's restoring Peter. He's forgiving and restoring Peter because three times Peter denied Jesus. I don't even know that man. And now three times through this conversation, Jesus is restoring Peter, calling him not, back, not just back in as a disciple, but even as a leader of other disciples. This is God's amazing grace at work to restore a man that does not deserve it, just like us. Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have transferred leadership of the disciples to John, who did not abandon Jesus. John's the only one of the male disciples who stayed at the cross, even. John would have been a worthy leader of the disciples. Could have just changed the plan, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus loved Peter, the failure. Jesus forgave Peter, the failure. Jesus extended grace and mercy to Peter when he didn't deserve it. Now, this is really good news for us, because we are Peter, right? If you're going to find yourself in this story, you have to take the name tag, write on it, Peter, and stick it on your chest. We are Peter. We fail. We deny our Lord. We choose safety over standing with Jesus. We disobey him. We sin in many ways. Even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we still fail. We still sin. We still mess up. 
And how does God respond to our failure? Does he say, well, now you've really screwed up. I've warned you so many times, but you just keep disobeying me. I am done with you. You are hopeless. Not at all. When God saves you, when he adopts you into his family, he does this for eternity. You are his now and forever if you are reborn in Christ. He'll never let you go. The same amazing grace that he brought to Peter in this moment, the same amazing grace that brought you into the family of God is the amazing grace that holds you, keeps you in the family of God, even when you're a rebellious fool and you're making a mess of things. If you've been reborn in Christ, I want you to see yourself as Peter today. No matter how you failed, no matter how you've made a mess of things, maybe you're just in rebellion right now, God amazingly still loves you. And he extends his amazing grace to you again. And he welcomes you back into his restored relationship with him. Now, you and I don't get to sit on the beach like Peter and have this one-on-one conversation with Jesus. So if we're guilty, if we've been rebellious, if we've been sinful fools, what do we do if we can't sit down on the beach with Jesus? Some of you know where we're going with this because I love to remind you of these verses from 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me read that last verse again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the amazing good news of the gospel. You you don't have to do any kind of penance to pay for your sin because Jesus paid for all of it. You don't have to try to manipulate or coerce God into loving you or forgiving you because all of the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, was taken by Jesus on that cross. It's all been paid for. You don't have to hide and hope that your heavenly Father doesn't discover the truth of who you are and what you have done. Hiding from God is just a foolish thing. Instead, God calls us to simply and truthfully confess our sins to him. Confess means to agree with what God already knows to be true. You're not filling him in on something that he doesn't know. You're not surprising him. You're simply confessing, saying alongside, that's what the word literally means, what he already knows. He knows what you've done. He knows your thoughts. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows it all, and he invites you to honestly own it and confess. And what happens? He forgives us. Amazing. He cleanses us. He welcomes us back into restored relationship. And so if you are hiding from God today, if you're pulling away from him because of your guilt and your shame and you think, I just, it's, it's worse this time. I, I don't think I could be forgiven. Let me encourage you that he invites you to honestly confess your sin. And he promises to forgive and to restore you. 
So how does our passage in John end? Well, it's kind of weird. Jesus will pronounce a, a prophecy about how Peter's going to die. Peter's going to lose his life as a martyr a few decades later. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, he's talking to Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Peter would actually be crucified himself. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I love those last two words there. It's as though Jesus says, Peter, you have made a royal mess. You have denied me. You've sinned against me, but I love you anyway. I have forgiven you. I have restored a relationship between us. I've restored you to your position of leadership as an under-shepherd caring for my sheep. Then he ends with, follow me. This is true of us too. If, If you've been forgiven, if you've been welcomed into the family of God, your calling from Jesus is to follow him. How is Peter to live and maintain the restored relationship that he now has with Jesus, he's to follow Jesus. He's to walk obediently with Jesus. How is Peter to show that he loves Jesus? He's asked three times, do you love me? How is he to show it? He's to follow Jesus and walk obediently with him. How is Peter going to be able to exercise this new calling of being an under-shepherd who cares for the sheep? The only way he's going to be able to do that is if he's following Jesus, walking obediently with him. This is simple, and it's beautiful, and it's true for us too. You and I are loved dearly by God. His amazing grace, which saves us even though we don't deserve it, also calls us to confession and repentance. His grace restores us when we sin. His grace commissions us to love each other and some of us even to love and lead his people. He tenderly invites us to follow him, to walk in obedience to him. If you're here today and you're not yet part of the family of God, then let me just say this to you. This this man, this God-man Jesus that we're talking about, that we claim died on a Roman cross and was put in a tomb and three days later rose from the dead and then met these guys on the beach and had this conversation over the broiled fish. This Jesus is God in the flesh, come to rescue you. He knew that there was no way for you to rescue yourself. So he came on the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever seen, coming, being one of us, living as one of us, facing all the temptations and the hardships that we face, and yet living a perfectly sinless life. Then taking our sin upon himself, dying the death that we deserved, paying the the penalty, the price for our sins, so that we could freely be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. That is the good news of what is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You can't perform your way in. You can't earn your way in. You can't impress God enough that he welcomes you into his family. Instead, he welcomes you freely through the grace offered through his son, Jesus. If you are sensing God calling you to his family this morning, I'd love to talk with you after the service, answer any questions, help you understand this gospel of grace. Now, if you're already a Christian here today, if you know that Jesus has saved you, but your sin and guilt is weighing heavily on you, then let this passage encourage you. You're not too far gone. You can even play the comparison game. Did you mess up as bad as Peter? Probably not. You're not too far gone. Jesus hasn't let you go. He hasn't given up on you. And you can come to him even now in confession. You can turn from your sin and again receive the forgiveness and the grace that he's continually offering you. And then you can also follow the call to follow him and to walk in obedience with him. Jesus, the crucified one, is no longer dead. He is risen. He is alive. And he holds out his hand to you, inviting you to follow him, to walk closely with him. Will you follow him? We're going to sing one last song about Jesus being our living hope. But before then, we're going to have a minute or two of silent reflection time. And here, here's my suggestion. Take this time and try not to be distracted by other things going around. And just take this time to confess to your Lord the ways that you have failed him, the ways that you've denied him, the ways that you've run from him, the ways that you've just made a mess of things. He already knows it. Bring him to Bring these things to him in confession. And know that his promise is true, that he forgives you. And then walk in obedience, following him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not dead, that you are alive, not only risen from the grave and shown up on a beach in Galilee, but you now reign on the throne of heaven. You are Lord over the universe. You are not only the creator, but you are the sustainer. And one day the, the seen by everyone, ruling master of all. Thank you, Lord, that you know everything that's taking place. You know the speed and the movement and the direction of the farthest star from here. You know the mysterious things that take place beneath the surface of the waters in the Sea of Galilee or, or Lake Erie. You know the things that take place under the surface of our hearts. You know the things that we hide from all other people. You know the things that weigh on us with shame and regret and guilt. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to come to you with those things now. That we would take the invitation of 1 John 1.9, that we would confess our sins, that we would receive forgiveness, and that we would then take the challenge that you gave to Peter and that we would follow you as we walk out of here. So help us to draw near to you now as your people. We thank you for your amazing grace and the gift and invitation that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.